Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Thank you for including the Food Focus podcast in your weekend or, I guess, weekday plans. If you do choose to wait and listen on a Monday through Friday, Trent and Leighton Kling with you. and We've got four great food stories in this episode of Food Focus, including another recall with Bluebell Ice Cream. And we'll talk about the brewery Sierra Nevada's planned brand extensions coming out in 2017. But first, we begin with Taco Bell. There's a number of things going on with Taco Bell. They revealed their $1 feast promotion this week. They also launched the Cheddar Habanero Quesarito, which will be available in the company's $5 Taco Bell Big Box. And speaking of that big box, they've got a tie-in promotion with Sony PlayStation Virtual Reality. So a lot of things going on this last week with the Taco Giant. Yeah, customers who buy a $5 big box, which we should include there, contains the new Cheddar Habanero Quesarito, as you mentioned, the Doritos Locos Taco, a Crunchy Taco, and a Medium Fountain Drink. So the company really wants to push this, but it is a promotion that's coincided with the PlayStation VR, the virtual reality system that PlayStation is officially launching and will be released on October 13th. However, we should say here, it's really special for Taco Bell to have this promotion roll out with the $5 big box because they're offering customers who win and receive one of these to get it two days prior to PlayStation's official rollout. So customers who are lucky enough to receive this will actually receive it on October 11th. So it's a little bit of an incentive to get into your local Taco Bell and to see if your code matches up with the company's website offering to see if you've won what you can do is visit the company's website once you've purchased one of these five dollar big boxes with the new quesarito enter a code 72823 text your code from the side of the box to that number to see if you've won now Taco Bell said this is a limited time promotion and they're only giving away 3,360 bundles. I say only. I think that's quite a bit actually. When you add it up, it's a $1.7 million value. That's a lot of PlayStation VRs for them to launch. The real question here is, is it good for them to tie this in to a new product or should they really have tied this into something that Taco Bell fans are familiar with that is more of a common higher selling item? The quesarito, just for those that might not be a little bit familiar with it, is basically a burrito made with a quesadilla as a shell instead of a traditional tortilla. They've had the quesarito before, not with the spicy kick that the habanero provides. And the quesarito has gotten kind of a cult following, and so this is something that Taco Bell is really trying to push. And the prize bundle doesn't include only the PlayStation VR headset that they are giving away, but also a PlayStation camera camera, two PlayStation motion controllers, and a $40 PlayStation Store credit for customers. This isn't the first time that Taco Bell has partnered up with video game companies 
for a promotion. In fact, going all the way back to 2000, they actually handed out games as prizes in their kids' meal. The first game was called Taco Bell Tasty Temple Challenge, and it actually operated on a DOS platform back in 2000. But in 2006, they partnered up with Tech Kids Flash Ops to put out a line of games for Windows there. And in 2007, they did the same thing with 3D Ultra Mini Golf Adventures. They included those in kids' meals in 2007. But we fast forward to the last few years where they've had powerful partnerships with PlayStation. We saw late last year that Taco Bell gave away gold PlayStation 4 bundles with a big box promotion and basically customer could see the minute they bought a big box whether they were a winner and Chris Brandt who was at the time their chief marketing officer was quoted as saying that they had a large positive reaction from prior gaming team-ups and so they were able to team up with PlayStation to give customers first access to that PlayStation 4 system before it hit retail stores at the time. And again, that promotion was going on September. But what he said that really stood out was our fans, fans of Taco Bell, enjoy gaming. So there is a large crossover of gamers in their core market. When you look at the brand marketing folks at Sony, they see the same thing. In fact, Guy Lonworth, who is the senior vice president for brand marketing at SCEA, said, and I quote, following the positive response from the gaming community for the PS Vita campaign last year. We are thrilled to have the opportunity to partner with Taco Bell to tap into the excitement as we prepare to launch PS4 on November 15th. So again, that was last fall that they launched that. And the Sony and PlayStation folks obviously saw value in that promotion because they're right back with this additional VR promotion. So this is something that's continued even though Taco Bell has a new chief marketing officer in Marissa Thalberg who said this year that it was an opportunity to bring two exclusives together with the spicy quesarito and the PlayStation VR. Yeah, and that's what I was just going to say. I was actually going to read her quote that said that. It really answers my question in that they looked at this and they looked at their prior promotions with the video game industry and said, listen, our demographics are in line with those who consume video games and are interested in the new technology that is always coming out. And so they've thought this through and obviously that's why they're having this PlayStation VR launch. And as you said, it's not just the headset. It comes with the camera and the two motion controllers and it's a quite expensive bundle if you were to purchase it outright. So I think this is an interesting thing to offer it with exclusivity through this new Quesarito. I would like to see rollouts like this continue on into the future. As far as these promotions are concerned, of course, Taco Bell runs pretty much monthly promotions with different companies. Sometimes you get external company tie-ins. In most cases, though, it's a food company. Lately, they've been bringing in, again, Sony and PlayStation into these tie-in promotions. And they're running this in conjunction with their $1 feast promotion. So if you drive by a Taco Bell or if you visit a Taco Bell over the course of the next few weeks, they'll be really trying to push their dollar menu. And as far as the economics of everything is concerned, we've talked about in the past Taco Bell's margins and that type of thing. But one of the studies that came out this week suggested that fast casual restaurants were seeing a decline in overall traffic in part because prices had gone up on their menus. And this is something that we really haven't seen for Taco Bell. Outside of a little price inflation at the end of the last decade, Taco Bell's been able to remain fairly stagnant in terms of the prices they're able to offer consumers. And this is really driven home when you look at the $5 box. You've got 
three menu items of fairly substantial size and a drink. So again, Taco Bell not only trying to tie in with Sony here, but over the course of the next month, trying to remind people that their value menu is still a dollar as of 2016. Well, keeping along with promotions and the overall customer experience, effective next Monday, September 26th, Pizza will have their first chief customer officer in Helen Vade. She'll manage the customer experience, international e-commerce, technology, and overall technology operations for Pizza Hut. And I think this is more about the evolution of the fast food industry getting tied with on-demand services. So a lot of customers are now purchasing their food via app, purchasing food, making orders before you pick the items up at those individual locations. A lot of people don't want to sit in restaurants anymore. They just want to get their food and go. So I think they saw a need for this overall and Pizza Hut acted. And because of that, they now have their chief customer officer. Yes, their new hire was most recently Walmart's vice president of digital store operations. So it's important that she's got the digital aspect in her back pocket. Additionally, she was a general manager at Snapfish, which is a web-based photo sharing and photo printing company. For those unaware about what spot in the overall marketplace Snapfish operates, Pizza Hut, just like Taco Bell, and those two businesses, of course, have been tied together for some time. This has been a busy last week for them. In fact, Pizza Hut is launching or in the midst of launching a new ad campaign that has been churned out by Draga5. And in this first ad campaign or the first ad from the campaign, there is a homesick alien that is actually shilling for Pizza Hut. Pizza Hut has also introduced the new grilled cheese stuffed crust pizza, which is basically a stuffed crust pizza with a grilled cheese like filling in the crust. So these ads are very unique. They're kind of offbeat is what a lot of analysts are saying. And the grilled cheese stuffed crust pizza kind of goes against what some of the other pizza companies are offering in terms of promotions. I think it's more closely tied to perhaps some of the promotions that Little Caesars has been offering of late. But we were just talking about Domino's. Their latest promotion is actually the fact that they have salads. Now granted their ad campaign is pointed at those who like salads kind of ruining pizza day and that type of thing but they're still marketing salads a lot of pizza companies papa john's in particular are marketing the freshness of their ingredients and then you have pizza hut coming out with a grilled cheese stuffed crust pizza which kind of goes the other way in terms of your wholesome ingredients and that type of thing i don't think anyone's going to look at a grilled cheese stuffed crust pizza and think wholesome but back to the original topic pizza hut now is seeing so much business come through not only online orders through desktop or mobile platform, but also through app orders. And in fact, you're seeing orders here through the app and through online increase extensively over the last few years. Again, we've talked over the course of the summer and now into the fall about the growing trend of the to-go industry. And so Pizza Hut seeing a little bit more of this, and it will be important for their first chief customer officer to not forget about the fact that they do offer in-store dining experiences at a lot of their locations throughout the country, especially locations in rural areas. As far as Pizza Hut overall, they have 16,000 locations or over 16,000 locations and they're wholly owned by Yum! Brands. They've got an overall presence in 100 countries, but it's going to be absolutely crucial for them going forward, not only putting the customer experience first 
as their release claims that they do, but also creating a somewhat easier platform and cutting down the barriers for people to be able to order pizza. And that's one of the things that we talk about with Domino's. Their app has been so highly regarded on the iTunes marketplace and the Google marketplace and that type of thing that they are regularly pacing Pizza Hut's app in terms of ease of ordering. Pizza Hut does have a large social media presence, but there is a difference between having a very good functional app and just social media and strong marketing. So I think they're going to have to combine the two. And in this day and age, if you're in the fast food industry, particularly the pizza industry, which is ultra competitive right now, it's essential to have both. Prior to this hiring, Jane Watts was the chief people officer for the 7,000 international locations. So it's important to note that their new chief customer officer, Helen Vade, will actually be overseeing all of the locations. You had mentioned that they have presence in 100 countries. Pizza Hut actually operates 16,000 locations within those 100 countries, and that actually does include the United States. So overall, there's going to be a lot on her plate, so to speak, and I think that like you said, it's just a very competitive industry when you're talking about all of these brands who have made a resurgence. Domino's is one of them. Papa John's has always been a strong competitor, at least in the last decade or so. They, too, have a very strong app and integration with that. So they have a lot of things to do, especially when you look at all of the abilities to try to sync up the social media with their apps and the overall customer experience. It's one thing to just roll out a promotion, but it's another just to think about all the different markets that you have when you're looking at such a large company like Pizza Hut. Certain markets only offer certain promotions, so you really have to take time to organize those and really listen to your customers and know what they want and what they expect. But honestly, now is the time to focus on speed of delivery and speed and quality of service. You need to be known as a reliable operator if you are a Pizza Hut. They've come under a lot of competitive pressure, especially with those $5 hot and ready pizzas that literally Little Caesars has. If you talk about fast and convenient, typically you can walk into any Little Caesars location. You can get a $5 hot and ready pizza immediately. And so if you're talking about speed of service, Little Caesars has really come in on that, and especially with the $5 price point. So Pizza Hut not only has pressure of service, they also have pressure of price. So Helen Vade will have to look at both of these and really work with the rest of her executive team as to how they're going to go forward. But in a statement, she said, I look forward to further shaping Pizza Hut in a way that provides the best customer experience in the industry. So while that statement is a little generalized, I think she knows that she has a very large task ahead of her. And given her prior business experience, I wouldn't be surprised if she takes this head on and is able to really grow Pizza Hut's customer service overall. Well, we'll move away from the fast food industry to the prepackaged food industry as Bluebell Ice Cream announces yet another recall due to listeria concerns. Now, for those in the northern U.S. listening to us, Bluebell is an ice cream company that distributes largely to the southern U.S. In fact, they are, I think it's fair to say, one of the most popular ice creams if you go through Texas on over to Florida up into the Carolinas. And in fact, they're one of the largest ice cream manufacturers in the 
United States. Yearly, they've ranked in the top three or top four in the U.S. for overall ice cream production. So this latest listeria concern comes not from Bluebell directly, but rather from a third-party supplier. Aspen Hills is the company that makes the cookie dough chunks that go in a couple of different ice creams for Bluebell, chocolate chip cookie dough in half gallons and pints, and also an ice cream called Cookie Two-Step, which is sold in half gallons. The products made in Bluebell's Alabama plant in intensive testing have shown traces of listeria. So Bluebell, out of an abundance of caution, they say, is recalling all of these products, both the chocolate chip cookie dough and the Cookie Two-Step products, in addition, Bluebell isn't taking any chances because they don't only manufacture this ice cream in their Alabama plant, but also their main facility in Brenham, Texas. And they're monitoring that very carefully to make sure that there are no listeria concerns over there as well. Yeah, and you talk about where this ice cream was manufactured. The ice cream was sold in 10 states, so it's affecting Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, Virginia, and then North and South Carolina. But I think we really have to look at their stance here. Again, this is out of an abundance of caution. No one has gotten sick yet. But from prior experience, they don't want that to happen. Back in March of 2015, they had actually recalled a similar ice cream. It was a country cookie, and it was linked to a listeria outbreak then. And it was actually the company's first recall in about 108 years. But because of that listeria outbreak, three people had died. And so anytime there is a death or serious illness that coincides with your food product, you're going to have to be paying a lot in terms of a settlement. They really wanted to avoid that. But more often than not, you see companies do this preventatively because they do not want to incur these costs, but they also do care for their customer base. As you mentioned, Bluebell has an extreme following, especially in the south and southeast parts of the United States. So some people were saying that they're actually going to be buying more ice cream off the shelves just in case it was the one tainted. So I think that's a little bit of concern. If you are in those regions, as we just mentioned, you should probably not be buying any of those two Bluebell ice creams available. But we should also mention that if you go to the foodsafetynews.com website, they list the certain manufacturing codes that were associated with these flavors of Bluebell ice cream. So if you look around the container, you'll see these codes and you'll be able to match them up from the Food Safety News website. I think that this is going to be very bad for the company going forward, considering 18 months ago they did have that previous Listeria recall. It is important for them to really send out the message that this is just a one-time thing and that no one has yet gotten hurt from this. I think going forward, the PR side of things is really going to have to push to the public to make sure that no competitors come in and take their market share. This is an unfortunate circumstance for Bluebell. When you compare them to other ice cream companies, they pretty much had to shut down their factories for a large portion of time. And they're only now, as you mentioned, a year and a half later, beginning distribution to some areas of the United States again. So they've fallen on tough times overall as a company. Like you said, they're in the middle of these settlements. 
the state of Texas is watching Bluebell extremely closely. And what's more is, in part because of the new standards that Bluebell put into place and the new testing mechanisms, that's one of the reasons why they were able to catch this listeria. And you could make an argument, not being intimately familiar with the testing mechanisms that they've put into place, that their testing mechanisms are possibly better than the testing mechanisms of other ice cream manufacturers. But yet Bluebell is the one that takes the fall for what in this this case is a tainted ingredient that's going into their cookie dough products. At least that's what Bluebell believes. Now regarding Aspen Hills, the company that provided the cookie dough, the only cookie dough that they have recalled is that which has ended up in Bluebell products. Despite the fact that their daily production capacity is over 180,000 pounds of product daily. They're still a fairly small company. Tom Lundeen, who is the owner, he still handles a lot of the high volume orders for them personally, but they not only provide cookie dough inclusions, which is what they call them, for chocolate chip cookie dough flavored ice cream, but they also provide cookie dough products for fundraisers. So if a high school, let's say, is trying to raise funds for their band program, then cookiedough.com or Aspen Hills will partner with them. Those students can sell the cookie dough, keep a portion of the proceeds, and then fulfillment is completed by Aspen Hills. So they are a large company in terms of the overall areas that they are involved with, but this is bad news for Bluebell because they are the ones that have taken the public hit before as far as public relations, and they're the company that a lot of media attention has gone to in the wake of this. This recall. There hasn't been a lot of talk about Aspen Hills. And in fact, when you go to Aspen Hills's website, there's actually on the homepage no mention of this recall of Bluebell's products or of the cookie dough that went to Bluebell on their website. Yeah, it is interesting that Aspen Hills hasn't listed any of the product recalls, but we should note that there's a lot of products that Bluebell sells that are not affected by this product recall. I think that's Bluebell's job to initiate conversations with the public to put that out there and say, just because this one product may or may not have been tainted, that doesn't really affect all of our products. So feel free to purchase Bluebell ice cream that does not have this particular ingredient. So they really should get on the PR front, even though they have just spent millions of dollars probably trying to brighten their image from the recall about 18 months ago. The burden is really on them to show customers that they've had this enhanced testing and that this is just preventative and that going forward they're going to have many more products that aren't affected by this and not only that is this is just a temporary thing i'm sure this will just take a matter of weeks to get this figured out with aspen hills moving on to our last story we're going to touch on the beverage industry as sierra nevada brewery gives in and they'll begin to offer brand extensions for their beer in 2017. They've been known as a strong market leader with craft brewers for quite some time now, but apparently they see the need to offer these brand extensions now because of competitive pressures in this particular industry. Yes, Sierra Nevada occupies an odd space in the beer industry overall because they are one of the first craft brewers that's out there. Their pale ale is relatively ubiquitous among craft beer drinkers. The only problem is the pale ale from that company is one of the first craft beers that most people that drink craft beer tried. So a lot of them have moved on and moved into other areas. So they've tried to attract other customers with their 
line of IPAs. They've actually been putting out these IPA mix packs. They're 12 packs with basically four different India Pale Ales. And for those that aren't maybe aware of the beer industry or aware of the ins and outs of the beer industry, IPAs are hoppier beers. They are typically stronger beers, higher in alcohol volume, and they are thought of as kind of the pinnacle of craft beer as far as what a lot of craft beer drinkers eventually gravitate to. If you compare it to wine, a lot of people might start out with sweet whites and eventually they gravitate towards dry reds. What you have with a lot of craft beer drinkers is they start out with perhaps, say, Sierra Nevada pale ale and they move into hoppier or stronger beers over time. But what's most interesting about this story is their willingness to offer brand extensions from their flagship beers. New Belgium Brewery has pretty much maintained since the mid-2000s that they felt no need to offer a Fat Tire Light or any other extensions of its most popular brand, although if you squint a little bit, you can certainly see that there have been some beer types that have played off of the Fat Tire name coming out of New Belgium. But New Belgium, Sam Adams, Sierra Nevada, regardless of what you think of those beer companies, they're more or less in the same spot in the marketplace where they have multiple brewery locations with the exception of New Belgium but they also occupy some of the top spots in the craft beer industry overall. Sierra Nevada's sales in fact may decline by a total of 4.4% in 2016 and that's according to Brian Grossman who oversees the company's brewery in North Carolina and Leighton overall there are a handful of different reasons for their slackening sales. Yeah, there appear to be several. People are tired of stale flagships, and pretty much every craft beer drinker has had the Sierra Nevada Pale Ale and have moved on. People are trying a lot of different flavors lately, and they've seen that reflective in the sales. Sales have had a 5.8% year-over-year decline as of September 4th. So they're looking at that sales decline overall and seeing that they need to do something as far as the brand extension to get more people into their brand again. So Torpedo, their second most popular offering, is down 9% despite the IPA market share increasing over the last five years. So that really tells you that they're losing market share and they do, in fact, need to do something to get those IPA sales back up. Overall, IPA sales accounted for 75% of the craft volume growth year to date. Also, more attention is being paid to craft brewers without the national presence of Sierra Nevada. If you just look at the Sam Adams market share, it's actually been quite large over the past few years. They are a publicly traded company, and you can see that the growth and their profit are in line with a lot of growth companies. So they're really focused on offering a lot of different seasonal products to get people invested into their brand and come to expect different offerings every month or two. So I think this is essential if you're Sierra Nevada as the third largest craft brewery in the United States to move on and get some different offerings out there to your general consumer. And you might be asking at this point, well, what are these brand extensions going to be? Have they been announced? Yes, in fact, they'll be rolled out January 1st of 2017. The first brand extension will be based off of their pale ale, and it will be Sidecar Orange Pale Ale. And this is a pale ale with an orange or fruit forward flavor to it. The orange, of course, is reminiscent of the already citrus hops that they use in the pale ale or already the citrus flavored hops that they do use, the West Coast hops that they include. And then they're also releasing a tropical torpedo, which is in line with a lot of tropical or 
fruity IPA offerings that are out there. These are basically an obvious attempt, I believe, to capitalize on the popularity of fruit-forward beers. We've seen brands like Kugels and Blue Moon grow in terms of market share massively in comparison to a lot of other beers and a lot of other brewers. Furthermore, these fruit-forward beers are credited for getting some people into drinking beer and moving from the growing cider market. So you're seeing Kugels produce beers like their Lemon Shandy, which they've had for several years now, their Grapefruit Shandy, which is been a little bit more recent. You're seeing Blue Moon make plays into that fruit space as well. And of course, Blue Moon puts out a, a pumpkin beer as they have for many consecutive falls. But it's not just those two. You see Anheuser-Busch and their brand Shock Top releasing different fruit forward beers. And so this is something that Sierra Nevada is trying to join in on and try to capitalize on. The article that was published on Brewbound.com, which was a fantastic article, it actually said that Sierra Nevada was going to encourage their distributors to try and get 50% market penetration on shelves with these two brand extensions by the summer. So the shelves that currently stock Sierra Nevada's Pale Ale and Torpedo, they want at least 50% of those same shelves to have these brand extensions. Additionally, the Golden IPA that Sierra Nevada has previously included in their 12-pack IPA mix for a couple of years now, will be offered as a seasonal in the spring, allowing customers to buy it for the first time in six packs and likely in 12 packs. Their initial release said this was the first time this was going to be offered at all, but that's not true. In fact, it's just been offered with other beers in their mix, 12 packs. Their Golden IPA is a little bit lighter of an IPA, and it's intended to compete against other lighter or wheat IPAs that exist on the marketplace. And then what are called white IPAs, which are IPAs brewed oftentimes with wheat and with Belgian yeast. But all of those beers that we're talking about, the fruit forward beers, the IPAs, the lighter IPAs, the wheat IPAs, those are growing in terms of market share. And as someone who's actually tried the Golden IPA from Sierra Nevada, it does dovetail nicely with those IPAs that are out there that are growing in terms of of market share. But it also, on the other hand, if you're a craft beer lover, it feels somewhat like Sierra Nevada is selling out because of these brand extensions, which are usually a little bit atypical for a lot of craft brewers. Yeah, and at the end of the day, those loyal customers are going to have to look at Sierra Nevada as a business. So if you're a company that has been stale, so to speak, for the longest time, you really have to do something to spice things up. And to see that their wholesale goals are to get 50% or higher distribution for those brand extensions, that's a huge signal to the other brewers that they're going to be coming in for this particular market and try to invade some of that market share. But overall, Trent, I'm not a beer drinker. As far as you trying this out, you said that you did try some of this out. Are you a fan of the fruit-flavored beers? And do you think that this is going to be good for them overall as they move forward? Well, I haven't tried the Sidecar Orange Pale Ale and the Tropical Torpedo yet, simply because they haven't debuted yet. But I have tried other citrus-flavored pale ales, uh, at least aside from the citrus-flavored hops. And it's not my cup of tea. Oftentimes, these beers tend to be a little bit sweeter than most of the beers I partake in. But I also understand that this is a popular market segment. And as you mentioned, beer and wine, these are some of the more interesting things with the beverage industry. If Mountain Dew came out with a brand extension, no one would 
bat an eyelash and no one would say that Mountain Dew is abandoning their brand image by creating this brand extension. But that is something that would happen in beer or wine with certain brand extensions that you have there. But again, as you mentioned, Sierra Nevada, as most breweries are, they're a business first. And when you're looking at year over year sales declines of four to five percent for some of these brands, that's a danger sign. And they've got to find a way to get people excited once again about their brand, reinvigorated in terms of their connection with the brand. They've done things to attract curious beer drinkers, including partnerships with other breweries, limited edition releases, and so forth. But in that, you're kind of missing the share of the market segment that's going to companies like Line and Kugels and Blue Moon, where people want to try different beers that are fruit-forward beers, or they want to try beers with tropical flavors in them. And in this, Sierra Nevada seems to be at least willing to give it a try to see if they can excel in that market segment. Well, we've reached the point in the podcast where Leighton and I will both discuss an item new to the food marketplace that we've tried over the last week or last couple of weeks, and we'll begin with Leighton's. Yeah, so we were talking a little bit about publicly traded companies. I went to one here recently. Red Robin has a couple locations near where I live. They've been offering a lot of promotions via email. You can sign up to their email listing as you can with most like restaurants. But Red Robin came to me with an offer via their email. It was a one-day only deal, and it said to come in and try a free tavern double. So what the deal was, it was if you come in and purchase two drinks and a burger, you can have one of these tavern doubles for free. So essentially, this is just a double cheeseburger, and it comes with bottomless fries. It's on a sesame seed bun. It comes with lettuce, tomato, two slices of cheese, two patties, and I gotta say it was quite filling. I expected it to be maybe the size of a typical Five Guys or In-N-Out burger, so maybe on the smaller side per patties, but let me tell you, just because they put two patties on this doesn't mean they diminish the size of them, so it was quite filling. It felt like it was almost a pound or more, but I don't know exactly how it weighed. I will say that it was very filling, it was very delicious, and I was happy I came in. You know, these promotions that give away some significant amount of food always entice me. Whenever you get a buy one, get one free offer like Chipotle has often, it really gets you to come in and feel rewarded for being a loyal customer. You feel like you're not just getting spammed via email to come into their restaurants and try out the regular offerings. These email offerings are pretty good when you're considering that you're getting an entire burger for free, albeit with the purchase, again, of two drinks and another cheeseburger. But overall, I was very satisfied with the experience. Red Robin, for our listeners who don't know, is more of a traditional sit-down experience. It's a little faster paced, but it's not a quiet atmosphere. So that's the one thing is a lot of families come in there. So you have a lot of birthday parties, a lot of folks with their kids coming in and dining out. So that is a downside for me as I am one of those people that now just like to get my food and get out. However, I did stay and dine in. They did not have a carryout option for this particular promotion. Well, keeping with the beer theme, we were talking about IPAs during the Sierra Nevada segment, 
And I actually had the pleasure of trying an IPA this week. I, I brought it back a few weeks ago from a trip I made to the Pacific Northwest, and I only did get a chance to try it fully this week. But it's from Scuttlebutt Brewing Company in Everett, Washington. And the name of the beer is the KEXP Transistor IPA. Now, for those that aren't familiar with the West Coast, KEXP is actually an independent radio station. It's a product, basically, of the University of Washington up there, and it's well-known known for launching a number of careers, including that of Kirk Cobain and Macklemore. But aside from that, this beer actually has proceeds go towards KEXP and keeping them on the air. So proceeds are donated to that cause. I picked up a six-pack of this IPA, and it is excellent. It is well-balanced. 5.6% alcohol by volume, so it's a little bit lighter as far as IPAs go. It works well with a great number of dishes. And to be honest, I wish I had brought home more than a six-pack from the Seattle area because it was delicious. I enjoyed it immensely, and it is a seasonal beer, so only in stores for a limited time through the next month or so there in the Pacific Northwest. I was looking at Scuttlebutt's distribution and it isn't too far outside the pacific northwest so i apologize to those that are on the east coast but if you ever get a chance to go to washington or oregon certainly do try out if nothing else this transistor ipa which was fantastic it's very fascinating the dynamic between the typical beverage industry and that of the beer industry you see a lot of these seasonal offerings come and go and i often wonder if there is an offering that is really delicious that really does captivate your core customer it must not be a good thing to just take it off the market after being on the shelves for about a month or two do you ever get faced with that do you ever get faced with well i can't buy it now and i really don't want to wait for the next 11 months before I I see it again. It's difficult as a beer drinker, and I think a lot of beer drinkers are used to the seasonal offerings. In many cases, the seasonal offerings work well with the weather outside. So your winter beers will be darker, they'll be maltier, they'll be heavier. Meanwhile, your summer beers are traditionally lighter. But this is one of those beers where I wish it was not just a seasonal beer, that it was a year-round beer because it was that good. And IPAs, one of the reasons they are boosting in terms of market share in comparison to other craft beers, and this is completely my opinion, is that they do go well with summer and they go well with winter. So they're a beer that kind of works with all seasons, not only winter and summer, but spring, fall, anything in between as compared to, say, a Blondale, which would work well in the summer, or a Marzen-type beer, which would work well in the fall or winter months. So yeah, I do get fairly frustrated sometimes when those beers come off the market, but it just makes me all that more eager when they hit the shelves in their particular season the next year. Huh. Well, that'll do it for us on the Food Focus podcast. For Leighton, I'm Trent. So long until next week when Retail Focus will hit on Monday. A reminder to follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus. We'll be back next week with another couple of podcasts. This has been the Food Focus podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.